Preface and Chapter 1 of The Wild Northland, The Story of a Winter Journey with Dogs Across Northern North America. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Stephen Seidel. The Wild Northland by Sir William Francis Butler. Preface. People are supposed to have an object in every journey they undertake in this world. A man goes to Africa to look for the Nile, to Rome to see the Colosseum or St. Peter's, and once, I believe, a certain traveler tramped all the way to Jerusalem for the sole purpose of playing ball against the walls of that city. As this matter of object, then, seems to be a rule with travelers, it may be asked by those who read this book, what object had the writer in undertaking a journey across the snowy wilderness of North America in winter and alone? I fear there is no answer to be given to the question, save such as may be found in the motto on the title page, or in the pages of the book itself. Reader's Note The motto on the title page reads, I cannot rest from travel, I will drink life to the lees. I am become a name for always roaming with a hungry heart. End of note. About 18 months ago, I was desirous of entering upon African travel. A great explorer had been lost for years in the vast lake region of southern central Africa, and the British nation, which, by the way, becomes singularly attached to a man when he is dead or supposed to be dead, grew anxious to go out and look for him. As the British nation could not all go out at once, or together, it endeavored to select one or two individuals to carry out its wishes. It will be only necessary to state here that the British nation did not select the writer of this book, who forthwith turned his attention from African tropic zones to American frigid ones and started out upon a lonely cruise. Many tracks lay before me in that immense region I called the Wild Northland. Former wandering had made me familiar with the methods of travel pursued in these countries by the Indian tribes or far-scattered fur hunters. Fortunate in recovering possession of an old and long-tried Eskimo dog, the companion of earlier travel, I started in the autumn of 1872 from the Red River of the North and, reaching Lake Athabasca, completed half my journey by the first week of March in the following year. From Athabasca, I followed the many winding channel of the frozen Peace River to its great canyon in the Rocky Mountains, and, journeying through this pass, for many reasons the most remarkable one in the whole range of the Rocky Mountains, reached the north of British Columbia in the end of May. From thence, Following a trail of 350 miles through the dense forests of New Caledonia, I emerged on the 3rd of June at the frontier station of Quesnel on the Fraser River, still 400 miles north of Victoria. In the ensuing pages, the story of that long tramp, for it was mostly performed on foot, will be duly set forth. Written by campfire or in canyon, or in the little log house of a northern fur fort, when dogs and men rested for a day or two in the long icy run, 
That narrative will be found, I fear, to bear many indications of the rough scenes mid which it has been penned. But as, on a former occasion, many critics passed in gentle silence over the faults and failings of another story of travel in the great lone land, so now it may be my fortune to tell, to as kindly an audience, this record of a winter's walk through more distant wilds. For, in truth, there has been neither time for revision nor correction. Fortune, which eighteen months ago denied me African adventure, offers it now with a liberal hand. I reached the Atlantic from the Pacific shore to find an expedition starting from England against Ashanti. And, long ere this story finds a reader, I hope to be pushing my way through the mangrove swamps which lie between the Gold Coast and Kumasi. To others, even must fall the task of correcting proofs, while I assume my part in the correction and revision of King Kofi and the administration to his subjects of that proof of British prowess which it has been deemed desirable to give them. Meantime, my old friends Chief Carcaconius, Calder, and Sir Fola will be absent from this new field. But, nevertheless, there will be present many companions of former travel, and one chief under whose command I first sought the great lone land as the threshold to the remoter regions. W. F. Butler, London, September 21, 1873 Chapter 1 there had never been so many armies in England. There was a new army, and there was an old army. There was an army of militia, an army of volunteers, and an army of reserve. There were armies on horse, on foot, and on paper. There was the army of the future, of which great things were predicted, and far away lost in a haze of history, but still more substantial than all other armed realities, present or future, there lay the great dead army of the past. It was a time when everybody had something to do with military matters, everybody on the social ladder, from the prime minister on the topmost round to the mob mover on the lowest. Committees controlled the army, departments dressed it, radicals railed at it, liberals lectured upon it, conservatives condemned it. Peers wrote pamphlets upon it, dukes denounced it, princes paraded it, and every member of Parliament who could put together half a dozen words with tolerable grammatical fluency had something to say about it. Surely, such a period must have been one in which every soldier would have recognized the grandeur and importance of his profession, and clung with renewed vigor to a life which seemed of moment to the whole British nation. But this glowing picture of the great nation of shopkeepers, suddenly fired by military ardor, had its reverse. The stream of advancement slowly stagnating under influences devised to accelerate it, the soldier wearied by eternally learning from masters the lesson he could have taught, the camp made a place of garrison routines and not of military maneuver, the uniform harness which had galled a Burton, a Palgrave, a Ruxton, and a Hayward from ranks where the spirit of adventurous discovery sickened under chilling regulation, this harness made more unrelaxingly irksome, a system of promotion regulated by money, the offspring, it is true, of foul corruption, but which had become not a little purified by lapse of time. 
This system, supplanted by one of selection theoretically pure, but destined to fall into that lowest of all corruptions, the influence of political jobbery, all this formed the leading features in that order of things, old and new, which the spectacle of a neighboring nation, struck suddenly to the ground by a mighty army, had caused the panic-stricken British people to overhaul and to reconstruct. Take it any way one can, an army on paper is not a satisfactory profession. It is subject to sudden and unlooked-for bursts of military zeal. It is so bent upon nervously asserting itself fit for anything, it is from its nature so much akin to pen, ink, and envelope of a commonplace type, it has such disagreeable methods of garrisoning the most pestilential spots upon the earth and abandoning to republican bluster whole continents called colonies. Those who shape its destinies are so ready to direct it against matchlock monarchs and speared soldiery, while arms are folded before those conflicts which change the past and future of the centuries. All these considerations go a great way towards making the profession of arms on paper at any time an anomaly. But when there was also present to the memory of one who thus regarded the new order of military life, the great solitudes, the inland oceans, the desolate wilds, the gloomy forests of a faraway land, through which his former wanderings had carried him, when thought resought again those vast regions of the earth where nature has graven her image in characters so colossal that man seems to move slowly amidst an ocean frozen rigid by lapse of time, frozen into those things we name mountains, rivers, prairies, forests, man a mere speck, powerless so far to mark his presence in a blur of smoke, in a noise of city, in clash of crank or whirl of wheel. When these things came back in pictures touched by the soft colors memory loves to limb with, there were not wanting dull professional outlooks and dearth of service to turn the footsteps gladly into the old regions again, there to trace new paths through the almost exhaustless waste which lies between the lonely prairies of the Saskatchewan and the icy oceans of the north. What shall we call this land to those who follow us into its depths? It has prairies, forests, mountains, barren wastes, and rivers, rivers whose single links roll through twice a thousand miles of shoreland, prairies over which a rider can steer for months without resting his gaze on aught save the dim visage of ever-shifting horizon, mountains rent by rivers, ice-topped, glacier-seared, impassable, forests whose somber pines darken a region half as large as Europe, sterile, treeless wilds whose 400,000 square miles lie spread in awful desolation. How shall it all be called? In summer, a land of sound, a land echoing with the voices of birds, the ripple of running water, the mournful music of the waving pine branch. In winter, a land of silence, a land hushed to its innermost depths by the weight of ice, the thick falling snow, the intense rigor of a merciless cold, its great rivers glimmering in the moonlight, wrapped in their shrouds of ice, its still forests rising weird and spectral against the aurora-lighted horizon, its notes of bird or brook hushed as if in death, its night so still that the moving streamers across the northern skies seem to carry to the ear a sense of sound, so motionless around, above, below, lies all other visible nature. 
If then we call this region the land of stillness, that name will convey more justly than any other the impress most strongly stamped upon the writer's scene. End of chapter 1